Welcome. I'm so glad you've joined us. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is. This is the place where we challenge each other to stretch toward God's high calling. It's the place where there's lots of grace, mountains of grace for everybody. And it's the place that God helps us strengthen our confidence in Him, because we think of faith as absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Let that sink in a little bit. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. God wants us to trust him. He wants us to have faith. And we're helping each other develop that kind of strong faith that trusts God always. So thanks for joining us. We're going to have a great time today. A little bit unusual approach to things today, but we're going to explore some more of the Old Testament and the stories that we hear there and allow the Lord to teach us some lessons from those. A rather unusual story, you kind of look at it like, why is that in the Bible? And particularly, it's several chapters long, this saga of Absalom and David, and you kind of wonder, why would the, why would the writers of the Bible give it that much space? Because it was actually a rebellion that failed, and why is that important? Well, we need to think about that, and, and I'm going to encourage you to, to kind of let the story soak in and develop your own conclusions on some of that. Because as you study this, you won't find a lot of people coming to great and mighty conclusions. There are some, some things we can draw from it, but there's a whole lot that goes on. And I think it's important for us to hear the story. I always think it's important for us to learn the stories and then allow the Lord to apply them to our lives as we need them, and allow him to to help the example, the mistakes, the good things, the really terrible things that happen. Let them all guide us so we can avoid some of the things that we don't want, so that we can have the life that God always wants us to live. So let's plunge in a little bit, and, and let's start here. A lot of years ago, a lot of years ago now, I remember hearing someone say, and, and this statement really struck me, I guess it's why I remember it, uh, and, and I couldn't quite wrap my head around the statement. The person who said it, I think I remember who it was, but at, at any rate, it was a person that I had confidence in, so I wasn't really expecting them to say something outrageous or ridiculous or or unimportant or uh, something that wouldn't be helpful. So when, when I heard this phrase, I, I, it really caused me to stop and think. And, and the person said this, friends come and go, enemies accumulate. Let me run that by you again, because it's a little bit interesting. Maybe you've heard it, and maybe it didn't strike you the way it did me, but it, it was simple. It, he said, friends come and go, but enemies accumulate. And I remember at the time thinking, well, dear me, I don't want my enemies to accumulate. Who wants enemies to increase over time? Uh, who wants to collect enemies? And I thought, this is a, that's a terrible thing, and I didn't want to have enemies. I don't remember thinking that I had any at the time. In fact, I say to people, I don't have any enemies today. There's people who don't like me very much but they aren't my enemy. I mean, it's, it's up to them whether they like me or not. I'm not trying to be offensive to them. 
but I know some people just probably that's just the way it is. And I don't know why it is, but, but I remember thinking at the time, I, I don't really want an accumulation of enemies who needs that. Right. And, and the other side of it that I remember thinking about was now, now why would my friends come and go? I mean, if they're my friends, why would that happen? And so I, I, it, I really tossed that around in my head. Well, looking back and, and as I think about that today, and as I've thought about it, I, I understand that there is a lot of truth to the saying, uh, friends do come and go. And it's not because they're not our friends. It's because, well, life happens. And it's just kind of the rhythm of the way life unfolds. Sometimes our friends move away for one reason or another, not a right or wrong thing. It's just a thing. Sometimes they move away. And sometimes we move away. Sometimes life takes us from where we were to where we are. A lot of reasons for those things to happen. It's just what happens in life. And I, then I was thinking, well, you know, even in the same town, and, and it's really interesting for me to think about that, that this way, because I have now lived in Cape Coral, Florida, longer than I've ever lived in any one place. And that struck me a couple of years ago. And I thought, wow, that's interesting. No particular reason for that. It's just the way life has unfolded. And, and it reminded me when I was thinking about this idea of friends come and go, that yes, friendships have changed over time. And not just because people have moved away or not because some friends are now with the Lord. That is all true. But life changes and responsibilities shift. And so friendships adjust. And it's not because we reject our friends or they reject us. It's just a part of life. And we learn to adjust to that. And, and whether we like it or not, it, it just has to be okay. And it is. Now, the enemies that accumulate are is always a lot more worrisome, and, and um, there's not much we can do about that, as far as I can tell. People, people who want to hold a grudge against us, they'll hold that grudge, and there's not a lot we can do to talk them out of it. I guess it's probably also fair to say, if people want to find a reason to be upset with me, they'll find a reason every time. <laughs> I guess, truth be told, it's probably not that hard when you think about it, but but so I guess in some sense, enemies accumulate as much as I don't want them to. Well, King David, through his life, and largely because of the sin that he committed with Bathsheba, seemed to have enmity problems uh, accumulate. God had helped him with the enemies of the nation, and they had taken care of that problem. But from within his own household, enmities sprang up, and we could say accumulated. And his son Absalom is the subject of what we want to think about a little bit today. And uh, he turned the people against David, and it resulted in a rebellion. And it resulted in Absalom's death. David remained king, but it's a sad, horrible story. Let's go through a little bit of it just so just so we can review and kind of have an idea. Well, one of Absalom's brothers, one of David's son, Amnon, really liked 
Tamar, who was his sister. Now, it's not as bad as you might think, but things were a little different in those days. But if you want to read about it, go to 2 Kings, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 13. That's where the story begins that we're going to kind of outline today. We won't get into every detail, but there's a lot of detail, and it goes on for several chapters. And when you read it, and I really go back and read it, when you read it, ask yourself, what's going on here that's so important that in the limited space that God had for a, a Bible for us, and as much as we appreciate the expansive nature of the Bible, it's still limited space. Ask yourself as you go through there, why did God give this much space to this story? So anyway, this, this young man, Amnon, fell in love with his sister, Tamar. She was beautiful, and, and he was just obsessed by her. It was, it was more than, more than um, love. It was, it was a genuine obsession. It was a real problem. But he couldn't get anywhere with her, and, and, and there were just barriers to that as part of the royal household and all of that. But one of his buddies came up with a scheme, and so they hatched this scheme that Amnon would pretend to be ill, pretend to be sick. And as a result of that, then he would request that, that his sister Tamar come and help him and, and be a kind of cook nurse to him, I guess you would say, to help him get over this illness. And so it was agreed. Then she came down and she, she prepared something that the scriptures would talk about, like dumplings, we might say, and, and did it right there in the room where Absalom was, or not Absalom, Amnon was pretending to be sick. And as she prepared them, he went about the, the ruse, and, and probably what was going on was she was preparing something easily digestible because he had this fake illness. So probably what she was preparing was something that was appropriate for an illness. And it could also have been that he had her come down to the room where he was, not just because he was interested, but also because it would be a protection, a precaution against poisoning, because a lot of things went on, and you'll find out a lot of things went on when you read this story for yourself. Well, she gave him the food, and, and the long and the short of it is he um, tried to seduce her, ultimately forced himself on her in spite of her absolute strong pleas that he wouldn't. She used strong language to try to bring him to his senses. She appealed to his personal honor and her personal honor, how that would be badly damaged. He would be considered a fool, she said. It, it would be as though he had no principles or no honor, and it would result in a bad end for him. And remember, in those days, honor was everything. She even finally, begging him not to do that, said that she could become his wife. But he would not listen to anything, ultimately raped her, and turned against her. The, the so-called love that he had for us turned into hatred and fury, and it made quite a scene, quite a wicked event. Well, Absalom heard about this, and he came to Tamar's defense, although nothing could be done now that the deed had been done really, and, and she likely lived an unfulfilled life because that's what tended to happen with women who were treated like this. But Absalom comes along and he kills Amnon, his, his brother, murders him. As a result, he flees for his life to his grandfather's kingdom. But even with all of that, the scriptures tell us that David still loved Absalom. 
David loved his son. And that's repeated over and over. It's, it's not uh, an uncommon thing in this story. In fact, it's something we need to remember that it's reinforced repeatedly that David loves Absalom. Well, he went into exile and he was there a number of years. And Joab, who was one of the king's advisors, one of King David's advisors, realized that, that this was not a good situation. In those days, like it is today, there's a lot of political intrigue, and particularly in a kingdom where someone was going to become king when the current king died, a lot of stuff went on. And so Joab, realizing that, that the situation with Absalom hiding out so far away and yet having a claim to the throne, something needed to be done. So he solicited a woman from Tekoa, and she's described as a wise woman, and, and we don't know exactly what that meant. It meant she had some special status, but the status is uncertain. And the town of Tekoa was about 10 miles south of Jerusalem, which was important because they were concocting this story. And so it had to be far enough away that no one could recognize that it was a, it was a made up story. And so she, this woman from Tekoa, this wise woman, developed this fiction and she put on a disguise and went into David with this legal fiction. And a king in those days was the court of last appeal, so it wasn't unusual for someone to come before the king and present their case and appeal it to the king. And the king was expected to provide justice and righteousness for the people. In many cases, the king delegated authority to elders and judges, but even so, some cases came to the king. So hers came to the king, likely Joab just arranged that, but I don't know whether that's exactly spelled out in the scriptures. And she comes in and she tells her story that she had two sons and they got into a disagreement they had a fight and one son killed the other son and now the people had turned against them and they were intent on taking that son's life now it's true in the scriptures exodus chapter 21 verse 12 talks about how murder was a capital offense so we understand that there was a little bit of a problem with her story and the, and the capital offense because there doesn't seem to be any witnesses to what happened. So there was some doubt going on. And she presented her concern to the king as though if killing her son took place, then she wouldn't have an heir for their, for their land and their family would be in jeopardy. And effectively, if, if they killed her remaining son, then she wouldn't have anybody to take care of her and she would be effectively destitute. And so it was a real, a real problem, a real personal issue, one designed as they concocted the scheme to get David's attention and sympathy. And so he said he would, he would take care of that. But then she went on to explain to him that, uh, that the story was really meant as a parallel to get David's attention and to draw his attention to his treatment of Absalom. And see, his treatment of Absalom in those days would have threatened the future of the king, of the king's throne or the kingdom. And David had exiled the heir and Absalom was, was the rightful next in line to the throne. And so he had exiled him out of the city because he had fled for his life and David hadn't let him come back. And so it was a real problem. And, and not only was that a problem, but because of that problem, it opened up the whole environment to opportunities for conspiracies and more trouble for the king and the kingdom. Well, it became very clear because David recognized what was going on very quickly, that 
Joab was behind all of this and had sponsored her to come out there, and that Joab was was lobbying, we would say, for Absalom's return. And so David agreed to let him come back, and, and he came back from exile. A returning exile had certain expectations. It was common in those days, and, and they would expect, this returning exile would expect, and Absalom now would expect honorable treatment and restoration to his previous status. Well, Absalom was not restored to his former status. He came back to the city, to Jerusalem, but David didn't see him, kept him away. Uh, now, on the, on the other hand, David didn't have him killed, so that's good for Absalom, but he, he, um, he didn't exactly get a full pardon because he was kept where he could be watched, where David could keep an eye on him. Well, long about this time in the story, we have this remarkable uh, bit of information about Absalom and his hair. Uh, some of us don't give a lot of thought to our hair because there's not a lot to give thought to. But the Bible makes it clear that, that Absalom's hair was remarkable, long and thick. And, and according to 2 Samuel 14, verse 6, um, see if I got that right here. I, I think maybe I got the wrong reference for that, but it's in there. I forget which chapter it was. Maybe it was 15 now. Let me switch over here. You wouldn't think I'd mess that up, would you? Well, it happens. That's why we have the text to look at. That's why we examine the text. And let's see. Uh, well, I know I don't know what place I took that from, but anyway, the Bible tells us that Absalom's hair weighed five pounds. That's a lot of hair. That's a lot of hair. And, and I find it remarkable that we get that kind of detail, but we also get the detail that at the end of every year, he would shave his hair and, and let it grow again. A remarkable kind of statement. Well, the ancients thought hair represented the life essence. So part of what that was demonstrating was was Absalom's ability to talk to people, I guess, and maybe a certain amount of charisma. But, you know, when you look at his life, the real story was that Absalom's essence was vengeance, greed, power. And it led to murder and conspiracy. And when you read the story, it turns out he was a ruthless and calculating person. So the hair didn't really represent a positive life essence if it represented anything, but they thought it did, except there's an omen text that people have discovered from years ago that said, if a man has beautiful hair, the end of his days is near. Well, <laughs> so all of you guys who have great hair, watch out. No, I don't think there's any truth to that, but all of us who, who look like God because we're bald and God is bald, then we understand that. So Absalom's head of hair shows up in the story, and later on we'll understand why that's important. Well, Joab came clean about Absalom, and they was fully reconciled with David, and, and Absalom finally had his audience with the king, and the king kissed him, which was an affectionate greeting and a sign of kinship. It was full reconciliation, but... 
There was no promise that he would be heir to the throne. So now he was fully reconciled and back to the status he would have expected. But there was no promise that he would be heir to the throne. So Absalom takes matters into his own hands, and he begins to sit in a strategic place by the city gate where people would come into the city who were coming to see the king to have their justice decided. And so he would meet the people and talk to them there and develop connections with them and handle things for them and talk nice to them. And pretty soon people began to think highly of Absalom. And all the time that he's doing that, it's a deliberate attempt to undermine David. And it worked. People began to be attracted to Absalom. Now, it's entirely possible that, that some of the reason for that was that David wasn't acting the way he should in terms of being king. We don't know that for sure, but it's possible. But certainly, we know absolutely, certainly, that Absalom undermined his father, King David. Well, events, events unfolded, and Absalom got permission to go to Hebron, which was a city about 19 miles southeast of Jerusalem. It was the capital when David was king of Judah, and it was far enough away from Jerusalem. And the reason it had to be far enough away is because Absalom went to Hebron to be crowned king. So it was in a capital city, so that kind of fit. And he had all this time manipulated, persuaded, gotten the people to support him. And so people rallied to him there at Hebron and crowned him king. Now that's a big deal. Well, they hear about it in Jerusalem. Absalom begins to go back toward the city. He has many, many more people supporting him than the limited number of troops David has to defend him in the city. So David and his household and his, his men, his, his soldiers, they abandon Jerusalem and, and flee for their lives because Absalom is coming and they have to get out of there. Time to get out of Dodge. Well, Absalom moves into Jerusalem, consolidates his power, and then ultimately attacks David. Now, part of what goes on when he moves into Jerusalem is part of what Nathan said to David would happen as a result of his sin with Bathsheba. Absalom, assuming himself to be king, takes control of the royal harem and publicly lets people know the harem is his. And that's a huge offense to David and embarrassment. Well, Absalom gets his act together more or less, although there's some intrigue in terms of the strategy that they take. And ultimately, his forces move to attack David. Now, they end up attacking in a forested area, and most people believe that David's three commanders, commanding three units of his army, likely arranged the battle to draw in Absalom's forces into that forested area so that it would be a better terrain for them to fight because there were fewer of them. So they had to find ways to tip the battle in their favor. And by drawing them into the forest, it's believed that that did that. Well, as a result of that, the, the losses were terrible. 20,000 men, a terrible loss of life during that battle. But rather quickly, David's forces are, turn out to be superior. They were better trained. 
better prepared, better equipped, and they defeat the forces of Absalom. And Absalom is out as part of the battle, and he is recognized by some of David's troops. They pursue Absalom, who is riding on his royal mule. And, and a mule in those days was a royal mount. We don't think of a mule as being royal, but it clearly was. When you look at the scriptures, it clearly was a, a, a royal mount, the royal mount. The, some people will say, and I think it's a good description, it's the royal coronation beast because Solomon rode it in. And of course, if you want to make a, a connection to the, to the New Testament, Jesus rode such an animal into Jerusalem on what we call Palm Sunday. So anyway, so, so, uh, Absalom's out there. They're pursuing him. He runs, rides for his life on his mule and gets caught. His head gets caught in the thicket of a tree. And he's hanging there alive, but helpless. It's really kind of symbolic of Absalom. Here he had aspirations to be king. He was riding a royal mount, but the royal mount deserts him, and he's left without a seat, without a royal place to sit, hanging in a tree. And of course, the Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 21 that someone is cursed when they hang on a tree. Well, Absalom is discovered and killed, and word gets to David. Process of events. Again, a lot more detail than I'm going into. Two runners go to tell David the story. When David hears what had happened, he retreats to an inner chamber and, and mourns openly with, with unbelievable grief for his son Absalom. Now, now keep in mind, he loved Absalom. That was clear. Uh, there's no doubt about that. That was made clear all through the, the story of, of this. And, and, and again, there's a lot more detail, and, and you, will, you will love this story if you go back and read it from 2 Samuel. David mourns and, and cries out for Absalom, Oh, Absalom, Absalom, my son, Absalom, my son. And David even says, I guess we should look at this from the scriptures so that so we get it exactly right. David even said, if only I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Really interesting statement there. If only I had died instead of you. Remember when Nathan spoke to David, Nathan said to David, the Lord has taken away your sin and you will not die. David surely must have thought of that because it was his sin that opened the door for this cascade of events that ultimately culminated in a rebellion against David, led by his son, and by the son that he loves, ultimate death while hanging from his head from a tree. And by the way, if you've always heard it was hair that he was hanging from, that's what I always learned too. But you look at the text, and it clearly says he was hanging by his head. So one of the things that we think about in this is why the intense grief, because grief obviously had accumulated for David. And probably part of it is his love for his son. Fathers love their sons. But I would be very surprised if part of it wasn't because he realized his own actions had set a terrible example for his family and contributed to the problem. The sin with Bathsheba had set into motion 
a cascade of events that resulted in this bitter loss to the king. Probably also realized that, that this behavior, this sin with Bathsheba affected his ability to act as king, and he probably realized that his inability to act like he should as king made all the problems worse. And so he, while not responsible in the same sense Absalom was, he felt that responsibility himself. Really reminds us, and, and we should never lose sight of the fact that, that sin is bad for us. That's why God says, don't do it. And that incident with Bathsheba was bad for David and the kingdom. That's why God said, don't do it. It was really bitter fruit that resulted from David's abuse of power. David's real moral failure. It's a real reminder to us that we don't want to get caught up in things because the consequences will be far more intense, far more serious than we realize. There is no sin that is victimless. There are always people affected by it. Kind of a tough story, but aren't you glad the Bible doesn't flinch from the tough stuff? It tells us the good, the bad, and the ugly about the people in an effort to help us choose a better way. Well, that's in kind of a nutshell, the story of Absalom. We're going to take a break in just a second, and after we come back, we're going to talk about the church. We're going to take a look at at what that means for us, and what about participation in the church, and and what about these days when so many people have drifted from the church and blame it on virus concerns? How do we get back to where we should be? Well, I hope you'll stay with us. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is Faith Is, where we stretch toward God's high calling, and we'll keep stretching in just a moment. I'll see you then. Because of COVID-19, the average American worries about their immune health four times a day. That's 112 times per year. To minimize the worries, leading nutritional supplement company, Healthy Cell, created Immune Super Boost, an immune supplement that contains 15 full doses of science-backed nutrients like vitamin C, zinc, elderberry, and echinacea, all in a one-a-day pill-free gel pack. It tastes great, is convenient on the go, and it's more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Supporting a strong and resilient immune system can be simple. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Immune Super Boost. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. OutLoud.com is the alternative from the agenda-driven globalist. Here, we take on the challenges of our generation so that we can preserve future generations. On-demand podcast or real-time talk radio with our streaming apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back. 
This is Faith Is. I am Pastor Rick Stevens, and glad you stayed with us. We're going to talk about the church a little bit, a little bit more positive and uplifting section of the program today. Uh, I think the story of Absalom is absolutely riveting, and it's absolutely worth your, your time and attention. I would definitely encourage you to go read it from 2 Samuel. It, it is really it's hard to put into words the impact of reading it and kind of absorbing it. But I believe God gave us the, the Bible and all of the Bible for a good reason. So uh, go back and take a look at it. it. It'll be definitely worth your while. And I want to also uh, make sure I get back. I think it's important that we keep the sacred story straight. And when I get something that isn't straight and realize it, I want to correct it for you. And so we talked about Absalom's hair <laughs> and, uh, I did not give you the correct reference. The correct reference, I was close, to 2 Samuel 14. That was right, but it's 26. I had written down 6 instead of 26. And, and apparently what happened, and you'll read it there, this is why it's so fascinating to read these stories, that every year, after a year, his hair had become too heavy to deal with, so he had it cut off. And uh, that's how we know how much it weighed, because they cut it off and weighed it. And there you have the wrap-up of that part of the story. So, well, let's talk about the church. And I came across this article written by a pastor named Dan Ryland. He's from the suburban Atlanta area. He's a pastor there at a very large church. And, and he wrote this article, and the title is Five Reasons People Are Drifting from Church. It's posted online. You can probably find it. In fact, I believe you'll find it at danryland.com. D-A-N-R-E-I-L-A-N-D.com. And it's worth reading the article. And I, I won't give you all of the article, but we'll go through some of it and talk about that and think through five reasons people are drifting from church. And as a pastor, I've seen that all my life, people drift from church. And, and it worries me and concerns me because rarely have I ever come across someone who had a real good reason for drifting from church. People think they do, and they come up with a reason, but rarely have I seen that. They don't answer to me, and I'm not here to make them answer to me, and you don't answer to me, and you don't have to answer to me, but we all will answer to God. So we need to think about how this plays out in our lives. Well, many of us are familiar with, with Hebrews chapter 10, and along about verse 25, we are admonished that we should not avoid worshiping together. And, and I like the way the message puts that. So let me read that from Hebrews chapter 10. Let's see how inventive we can be in encouraging love and helping out, not avoiding worshiping together as some do, but spurring each other on, especially as we see the big day approaching. And the way they use the reference big day means the day of the Lord or the Lord's return. I like the way that it said that because it talks about how, how we should see how inventive we can be in figuring out ways to encourage each other and helping out. You know, too many of us go to church, and I guess I'm getting a little ahead of us, but we'll, we'll wrap all of this up. Too many of us go to church expecting to get, inspecting to, instead of expecting to go and encourage. I wonder how different your church would be if you made it a point every Sunday to go with the intent on finding three people that you would sincerely and purposefully seek out and encourage. See, that's the idea that's mentioned here, that we should not avoid worshiping together, as some do, but 
it says, spurring each other on, encouraging each other on. And that's what church should be. Sometimes I've said that, that Sunday is God's day for us to push the reset button. Or maybe you like the idea that Sunday is the day for us to reboot our lives and get all that cruft out so that we can start fresh. God has given us the gift of Sunday, but increasingly people are drifting from church. And, and a lot of it is in these days is because of virus concerns. And, and I'm not here to beat up on anyone if they're genuinely afraid. We could talk about the virus and its impact, but that's a little bit of a different subject. I want to focus on, on, on the church and, and its value to us and, and challenge us to think about the reasons we might drift. Because I've noticed some people that drift from church drift on vacation. How about that? Now, it seems to me that if we can drift and go on vacation, we ought to be able to drift and go to church. Just a thought. Well, people drift for a lot of reasons, and sometimes it is vacation. Maybe they're gone for two or three weeks, and, and they just don't get back to it. Maybe they have work responsibilities that take them out of town, and so they miss a weekend service. Uh, could be any number of things. I mean, if we want to look for reasons, we can, we can find a bunch of them. And Dan talks about that in, in his article. And, and yet, it seems that, that people, when these things happen, they just end up drifting, and sometimes they end up disconnecting altogether from the church, not because of anything they don't like about the church or anything. It's just like it just kind of happens. And we need to think about things. One of the things that, that Dan Ryland says in this article, he says, he says this, the point of weekly worship is not attendance, it's participation in the body of Christ. And he's on to something there. We think we go to church to get something or to attend, to punch the ticket for that week so we can say to God, I showed up. That's not it at all. It's there to be part of the people of God. And, and people will say, well, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Boy, that's splitting hairs, don't you think? There is no sense anywhere, anywhere in the Bible from the beginning of the covenant with Abraham to the end of the Bible. There's no sense where people are to be disconnected from the people of God and to be Christians and followers of Jesus. God intends us to, to gather like that, and we need to do that, and we need to remind ourselves. Now, sometimes people do find interesting reasons, and they, they show up to church. They come back. Sometimes people are disappointed for church for one reason or another. I get that. I've been disappointed plenty of times, and I'm a pastor. It's not about me and my disappointment. It's about God and God's people and my responsibility to, to participate in the, in the church and the people of God. And, and you know, another, another thing that, that always strikes me as odd is people think, well, if I don't attend, if I don't participate, it doesn't really matter. The church will get along fine without me. Well, the, the, the reality is God is with his people, and God is not going to abandon the church, and the church will get along. I'm not sure the church always gets along fine without people, because you matter to the people that are there. You probably matter more to them than you know. And I don't mean to be all soupy about that, but I think we need to take that seriously, that, that we do have a contribution, and when we're there, it matters. It matters to people, and our testimony of, of participation matters, and we shouldn't take that lightly. 
because we influence people by, by that act of being present. So let's talk about what Dan had to say. He, he lists five practical responses to the most common reasons for drift. And, um, I want to quickly give him credit for the good things. If you hear some weird things, maybe that's me, but let's give Dan credit for a well-done article. If you want to argue with the things that I talk about, then argue with me, not Dan, give him credit. I'll be happy to argue with you, but uh, let's not argue. Let's think this through and, and let's not argue. Let's realize that when, when we get a little defensive, that's sometimes that's the Holy spirit saying, Hey, bud, pay attention here. This is for you. You need to get this. So he says, the church doesn't meet my needs. One of the common reasons for people to drift. Well, I've, I've heard that for a long, long time. In fact, my earliest days as a pastor in a church, I can remember a number of people there for a while were, were stepping away from the church and their explanation was, well, I'm just not being fed here. Well, I was pretty young at the time. I didn't quite know what to think of that. I thought it was kind of empty at the time. I couldn't see any reason for that because uh, I wasn't the pastor. I was on, on staff, but the pastor was doing a fine job and his preaching and teaching was, was really superb and no reason to find fault with it. But these people were saying, I'm just not being fed. That, that's just, that's just kind of weak. Don't you think? Well, I agree and I work hard at it. And sometimes it's better than others. I get that. Sometimes it just touches people in different ways, but I want our church. I want your church to always provide something worthwhile that when we gather together, that, that not just the, the message that's rooted on the text of the Bible, that's, that is a foundation in the scriptures. I want that to be so, but I want the, the music part to be meaningful. I want the prayers to be helpful. I want words of encouragement to be shared. We regularly gather around the Lord's table. I want that to be meaningful because the Lord himself is present with us. And so, so that's a reasonable expectation. But the other side of that is, and here I go, if all we go to church for is to, say, to see if we can get our needs, needs met or see if they sing the kind of songs we like or whatever, isn't that at its root, an expression of selfishness. I want what I want. Friends, going to church is not like choosing a grocery store, okay? It's a lot different than that. So if you find the church doesn't meet your needs, examine that carefully. Now, if the church is teaching the Bible and faithful to the, to the Lord, then you're on the right track, and maybe you need to take a look at yourself. Second thing that he says is that people don't come back to church because they attend online. And I'd be the first to say online is, is a great tool for outreach and to help people, people who can't get to church because of illness or infirmity. It's a great opportunity for them to stay connected with their church. And I think that's a gift that God has given us. It's a gift that, that many of us, if we choose, we can attend churches online, literally from any place in the world. And I think that's a great advantage. But you know, it's never going to replace being in person. I've lived away from my family most of my life, and, and we used to have phone calls, and we still do. But it never was the same as when we were all together. And that's the point. The point of the gathering of God's people is the gathering of God's people. And we need to be 
together face to face. Number three, he says, people use this as an excuse to drift away. My pastor made a decision I didn't like. Well, I bet that's going to be true. And it's going to be true again. No pastor makes decisions that everyone likes every time. I know the difficulties of that. I know the, the challenge of navigating different interests one way or another. I've lived through the era when there were worship wars, but thankfully not a church I attended participated. Uh, the attitudes were great, but I knew that there was potential for disagreements on all kinds of things. And we've had them here at my church now. And, and years ago, I was so proud of one of our, one of our mature ladies. She spoke up in a business meeting because I knew the decision had to be made and I knew it was not going to be unanimous. And I said, what do we do? If you don't get your way, if the vote doesn't go your way, and she spoke up right away and says, well, we'll just go right on. And it was, it was the voice of the Lord to our church. And we did. And, and I heard no complaining. I know there were people that were disappointed, but I heard no complaining. It was, it was remarkable. So yeah, the pastors and the churches are going to make decisions. You don't like it. And believe me, as a pastor, I make decisions that aren't my preference. And as a pastor, I've watched lay leaders make decisions that I thought they were doing the wrong thing, but it wasn't my decision and I needed to trust them to do it. And guess what? The church went right on, even though I thought it was wrong. And I suppose even though they thought I was wrong, we went right on. See, the, the important thing is not, do I get my way all the time? It's the important thing is, does God get his way? Uh, number four on his list is I don't need church to be a Christian. Well, I touched on that earlier because that's one of the things that just really really uh, bothers me. Um, theologically, in a purest sense, you don't have to be a part of a local church as we think of them today to be a Christian. Uh, you're not saved by the things that you do and become a Christian because of that. But, you know, at the same time, as I said, there is no sense of being part of the people of God that separates us from the people of God. And, and again, I, I don't, I, I guess I don't say this often enough ever, but, but the church needs you. Your church needs you. I will regularly say to people that, that uh, we might come across, that we'd, we'd be happy to have you at our church, but if you have a church, your church needs you. I never want to take someone away from their church. The only reason I can think of today, and I haven't thought about this a lot, but we're, we're thinking this out, right? We're thinking this through. The only reason that I can think of today that someone might abandon a church is if the church is just not faithful to the Bible. If we're not going to teach the Bible, if we're not going to stay loyal to what the Bible says, if we're going to try to twist God's words to become what we want them to become, that's, that's an impossible situation and, and, and absolutely disappointing for all of us. So hang in there with your church. Make sure you give them every opportunity. Make sure you participate in every way you can. You know, and it's not the pastor's job to, to make you happy. It's not the pastor's job to make you unhappy, although some of us have a gift of doing that, if you want to know the truth. <laughs> but we rarely attempt to exercise that. No, the pastor's job is to help you discover how God has 
uniquely gifted you to make this wonderful contribution to the church. And again, I, I say it again, so many people devalue what they have to offer to the church. And we need people to step out and to step up and to embrace responsibilities at the church and to say, this is my church, and I'm going to give everything I can according to the gifts God has given me, and we're going to make this happen. We're going to have a church that God will be proud and pleased. We're going to have a church that when God is looking for a place to send someone who is struggling, he'll know our church is there and he'll send them to us because he knows we're going to be faithful to the truth of the Bible and we're going to love those people and we're going to help those people. We're going to draw those people in and we're going to be, we're going to be the image of God to those people because that's what the church is. The church is the visible the visible presence of Jesus in the world today. And we need to live that way. And we need to take that responsibility. And, and you don't have to be a pastor to be that. I think, I think people who are not pastors have so much to offer and we need to help them do that. I want to encourage you, get involved at your church, participate, be a part. No, you'll see things that you'll be disappointed in. Trust me, I have been to but you just have to get over that. Uh, as, a, as a good friend of mine said a few years ago, people are people. And that helps a lot. We just have to kind of work with each other. And the people that I get upset with probably sometimes get upset with me. That's life. But we give each other grace. And we work through all of that stuff. And we hang in there. And that's part of the reason that God's called us to be part of the church. Well, Pastor Dan also says in his point number five about people and drifting from church and the excuses they give is the church is all about money. Well, yes, no, it's not all about money. Yes, some churches make it too much about money. I've seen that. I've seen on some of the television programs, and I don't want to get trapped in that ditch. But I just want to be honest with you that, that some people, some churches really mess up in that regard. But I also want to be honest with you that churches have to have money to operate. Do you know how much, do you know how much it takes to accomplish $100 worth of ministry? Have you ever thought about that? How much is, does it cost for a church to provide $100 worth of ministry? You ready? The answer is not that complicated. For a church to provide $100 worth of ministry costs that church $100. So the reality is, if we're going to accomplish the work of God in the world, we're, it, it's going to require giving. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. You see, I think that God has said to his people that he wants us to give to the church because God knows it's good for us, and it helps tackle the monster in our lives called greed. It helps us demonstrate to God that giving to him is more important than me getting more. And that really is significant because we live in a world where people expect to have everything. Sad reality is a lot of church people, they give a lot of money but they give it to the cable TV company, they give it to the credit card companies, they give it for their car payment or their house payment. 
And none of those things in themselves are necessarily bad. But when we get ourselves all tangled up in those kinds of responsibilities and then look at how do we give God the leftovers, we've made a colossal mistake. And I think that's why God calls us to trust him and to put him first with our finances. So it's not about the church and money. It's about our hearts and what we're going to do about that. And the other thing I, I pretty regularly say is that some church people really have no problem with offerings and other church people don't like them very much at all. And I've said, I think the only reason that that's true is because offerings are measurable. They measure how much we trust God and whether we're willing to put him first. Makes a huge difference. So I want to encourage you, if you haven't been a part of your church, get to be a part of your church. If, if you've drifted for one reason or another, just stop. See, here's the brilliance of God, the absolute genius of God. From the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, he set apart a day to rest. Nowadays, we call it Sunday. I believe that God gave us that day so that we would orient the rest of our lives around that day that's set apart for him. Now, think about this. If you, at the beginning of the week, if you on Monday start thinking about how you're going to honor God on his day on the weekend, and his day is most commonly thought of as Sunday, you may go to church on a different day. I'm not fussing with you about that. I think that that's part of the genius of God, that we have some liberty with that. But think about this, the genius of God, that he says, make Sunday a priority. Make participating with the people of God a priority so that you set this day apart for that. And you make sure everything else you get done in the other six days. Well, what does that do? That requires us to examine our lives and to order our lives in a different way. I think that's why God gave us Sunday, so that we would order our lives and make the first things the first things, the important things the important things. And so we set Sunday aside, and we say nothing interferes with that. Nothing interferes with Sunday. How refreshing that would be for the people of God if, if people everywhere said, no, nothing interferes with Sunday. That is God's day, and here's what I'm going to do to honor God, and to set that day apart as special. Imagine that. Imagine the testimony to our neighbors. Imagine the witness to our kids who don't think we take God seriously, that we would all of a sudden say, no, Sunday matters. And I'm not telling you what to do on Sunday, except show up to church, but do something intentional that says this day has boundaries around it, because this is the Lord's day. And maybe even if we just started calling it the Lord's Day again, that would help us recognize that God intends for it to be a sacred day. Well, that's a lot for, for one program. I really believe if you'll embrace Sunday, it'll help your, your life. It'll change your life. It'll make it so refreshing. But in the light of all this church talk, I want to finish up today by giving a shout out and thanks to my church, Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida. They've been very supportive of each other, They've been very supportive of, of our church's ministry through this pandemic time, and we have not panicked. We have not been afraid. We have trusted God. Some of our people have had some illnesses, but through it all, we are going to be, be faithful to him, remain true to him, and we're not going to abandon the church. We're not going to abandon meeting together because we understand 
that God has called us to do that. And we understand that faith is absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're going to trust him enough that we're going to keep on keeping on, and we're going to keep on supporting the church. We're going to keep on building God's kingdom. We're going to keep on trusting him, and we're going to be his people no matter what. That's the kind of church I want for you. We're not perfect. Not a person here would say we are. We don't pretend to be. I'm even kind of annoyed that that comes up because nowhere in the Bible does it say we've got to be perfect in our performance, but it says we've got to be committed and loyal and faithful to God. And that's what we're determined to be. And I hope that's true for you too, because that's the kind of people God has called us to be, to put first things first, to put him first in all things. Well, thanks for joining us. So good to spend this time with you. Have a great week. See you next time on Faith Is.